Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. You can turn to 2 Kings 23, and while you are turning there, I will tell you what the upcoming schedule is, because next week is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. I didn't realize that it had snuck up on us like that, but suddenly next week is the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, and we always take that Wednesday off. The week after that, I have my throat-stretching annual event scheduled, so they're going to go in and dilate my esophagus, and so I called Tom and spoke to him about what that Wednesday was going to uh, entail, and we talked about it and realized that considering the, the mishmash of the holiday events and everybody getting family and traveling and all that, in the past we've taken the time off between Thanksgiving and New Year's. And New Year's and Christmas Day both fall on Sunday morning this year. So I don't know where you'll be those two days, but Christmas Day seems like a perfect day to go to church. Yes. And so. About that Sunday. She's like, are they all closed for church? No, it'll be open. Like, no, <laughs> well, at least I'll be here. I don't know who else will be here. If you've got kids who are unpacking gifts and everything, and you've got Christmas morning plans, then it'll be hard to get here. But the one that I'm going to be interested in is New Year's Day, because we're going to find out who the real party animals are at GCA, because the people that are out until midnight or afterwards on Saturday night, we'll see if they can drag themselves in here all bleary-eyed on Sunday morning. Why is everybody looking at Thaddeus all at once? (laughs) That seemed almost too obvious. So anyway, this will be, right now, this is the last Wednesday night service of 2016. And then we'll be off next week, and then Thanksgiving, and then throat stretching, and then suddenly, three weeks later, and we're into the Christmas festivities and all that. So every year it's difficult to get people gathered here midweek during that period of time. So we're just going to be back here January 4th, right? which is Wednesday, January 4th. So you all get some time off, and Tom and I will do what we always do. We'll go visiting the churches, and we'll go see what's going on out there. Now, tonight we're going to continue talking about Josiah, and I'm going to try to get us to a natural stopping point. I'm going to try to get to the end of Josiah, and we can just let that hang there for a couple of weeks. And then there are really only four more kings in Judah before they are completely consumed by the Babylonian captivity. A couple of those kings only last a a matter of months. And so everything happens in fairly rapid succession. A couple of the kings are put in place by the pharaoh of Egypt and stuff. They're puppet kings. So Josiah is the last substantial king, the last God-fearing king in Judah, and I find it remarkably amazing, like bookends, that God would start Judah's preeminence as a nation and as a kingship. They start with a good king. They start with a man after God's own heart. Yes, there's the time of Saul first, but then God establishes David. And David has Solomon, and then Solomon has the kingdom taken away from his son Rehoboam, Jeroboam in the north. And then The succession of bad kings that happen in the northern kingdom, and then they're taken into the Assyrian captivity, and there's a series of good and bad kings in the south, but the last good king is this Josiah. So really, in the history of Judah, they start with a good and God-fearing king, and they end with a good and a God-fearing king, almost like God is restating his presence, almost like he's making his presence obvious in Judah at the beginning and at the end. But even though he has sent them good King Josiah, nevertheless, because of all that they have done, he is going to take them into captivity, and his mind is not going to be changed about that. In fact, at the end of chapter 22, 
which we looked at last week, we see that Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Akbor and Shaphan and Uzziah went to Huldah the priestess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, who was the keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in the second quarter and they spoke to her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. That's the king. That's King Josiah. Tell him, thus says the Lord, behold, I bring evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the words of the book, which the king of Judah has read because the king of Judah, Josiah has found the book of the law again, and he has read the book of the law that includes the curses for not performing the law. He realizes that Judah is not performing the law and therefore they are under the curse of God. And so he's going to try to reestablish at least some of the worship of God. We're going to look at that tonight. He's going to reestablish the Passover and make it the most magnificent Passover that they've seen in the history of Judah. And yet God's going to do this because the prophecy continues Verse 17 of chapter 22, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath burns against this place and it shall not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, Regarding the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord, when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Neither shall your eyes see all the evil which I will bring on this place. And so they brought word back to the king. And I said last week, this is a demonstration yet again of God's electing and perfect grace that God is able to say to the man who belongs to him, to Josiah, the good king, who's trying to bring about the worship of the Lord and who is worshiping the Lord with all his heart. God is able to say, you, I'm going to keep you from the distress. I'm going to bring the distress. Judah deserves the distress, but I know how to protect and keep my own as well. And that takes us to 23. The reason I reviewed that is it starts with, then the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And you wouldn't know why that happened if you didn't know about the prophecy and the finding of the book of the law. So the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem went with him and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. That may be the first five books of the Bible. What we know is the Pentateuch, the writings of Moses. But at very least, it's the Deuteronomical law and the Levitical law. And those are long books. And these men all gathered with the king, and he read them the whole book. And I said last week, and you think my sermons are long. So he read them all these books. And the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, he read it in their hearing, all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar, and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that are written in the book and all the people entered into the covenant. So now all the people are agreeing we're going to be in covenant with God again. They're reaffirming the covenant of Moses made at Mount Sinai. The original group of people who heard from Moses when he came down from the mountain said, we'll do it. Everything you've said, we're going to do. And that resulted 
in them uh, walking for 40 years in the wilderness and the first generation being lost and then it resulted in a succession of good and bad kings and then it resulted in all kinds of idol worship and all sorts of cheating and lying and drunkenness and debauchery and sexual sin and everything else that went on in Israel. Even though they had said, okay, we will do it, they clearly did not do it. So now Josiah has found the book of the law. He's read it out to all the leaders and to all the people, and they've made the covenant a second time. We're going to keep everything written in this book. So verse 4, then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal and for Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven, and he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. So that even tells you that by then the temple was full of idolatrous symbolism, worship, idols themselves within the temple. The temple devoted to Yahweh still had Baals and Asherah in them. So he took them all out. He cleaned them all out and he burned them. Verse 5, and he did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding areas of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the host of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and he ground it into dust and he threw its dust on the graves of the common people. And he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord. I know. It makes you go, what? This is how bad it had gotten. Can you see why God was angry? Yes. The place that was supposed to be devoted to him was full of not only idolatry, but all kinds of sexual sin. So he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Then he brought all the priests from the city of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense. You're going to find out in a minute what that means that he defiled them. What he did was he made them unclean so that they would quit worshiping there and the way that he made them unclean was by finding and digging up the bones of men who had died and then burning those bones as an offering on those altars thereby making those altars no longer clean no longer available for worship but you'll see that coming up he brought all the priests from the city of judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned incense, from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates, which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the city gate. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places did not go up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brethren. Okay, one of the rules of the unleavened bread was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, every man that could travel was supposed to travel to Jerusalem and keep the feast there. But the priests had foregone that rule and were doing what was expedient for them. They would stay among their brethren, eat their unleavened bread. In other words, even though God said, this is the way it is, and this is the way it's done, and this is what I command, and this is what is expected of you, they thought, hey, it probably doesn't really mean that. I've got a better idea. I've got a different idea. I'm still going to keep the unleavened bread. I'll just keep it my way. I'll just do it my way. He also defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. That was one of the places of their worship, that no man might take his son or his daughter and make them pass through the fire of Molech. This is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is known as the valley, the Gay, G-E, 
the gay of Hinnom. If you put those together, that's Gehenna. And Gehenna is the place that Jesus used as an example for hell. That's the place where eventually the Judahites learned to dispose of all their waste. And so that valley became a, a, a constant burning fire where worms never slept and where fires were never quenched. And that's where all their waste went. When you've got that many people, the waste has to go somewhere and it would burn and the methane wouldn't burn. And, and that's what Jesus said. That's hell. That's Gehenna. Okay, well, that's also the place where they were burning and sacrificing their children. So you can see where that place got a bad reputation. He did away with the horses. These were statues of horses, which the kings of Judah had given to the sun, the S-U-N. They had dedicated them to the sun as an idol at the entrance of the house of the Lord. Imagine that. At the entrance of the house of the Lord, idolatrous statues by the chamber of Nathan Molech. Nathan Molech, he was an officer, and yet he was devoted to Molech and the worship of Molech, which was in the precincts, and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. And the altars, which were on the roof, the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord, the king broke them all down, and he smashed them there, and he threw their dust into the brook Kidron. And the high places, which were before Jerusalem, which were on the right of the Mount of Destruction, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for the Ashereth, it was the abomination of the Sidonians and for the Chamosh, the abomination of the Moabs, and for Milcom, a god or an abomination of the sons of Ammon. The king defiled those altars and he broke it in pieces. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and he cut down the ashram and he filled their places with human bones. And that's how he defiled them. Furthermore, the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now we're going back to the first king of Israel, the northern tribe. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, caused Israel to sin. So therefore the altar that was at Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, had made, even that altar and the high place he broke down. Then he demolished its stones, ground them to dust, and burned the Asherah. Now, when Josiah turned, he saw the graves that were there on the mountain, and he sent and took the bones from the graves, and he burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these things. Do you have any idea what that means? Why? You heard it. We read it. We talked about it at length. A long time ago, back when we were in 1 Kings. Now, here is something fascinating. I have said time and time and time again that there are all kinds of internal indications that this Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. Go back to 1 Kings. Oh, let's go to 1 Kings 14. Let's make it 1 Kings 13. That's what we'll do. 1 Kings 13. Keep your finger right there in 2 Kings. But a long time ago, we read a prophecy that seemed strangely out of place back in the time of Jeroboam. Now, recognize that the time of Jeroboam is 300 years before the time of Josiah. So we're talking about a 300-year gap, roughly, a little less. But we're talking about a 300-year gap of time. Now, I have frequently pointed out that Isaiah predicted Cyrus, the Persian king, by name, 150 years in advance. But here we're going to see a prophet of God predict Josiah by name 300 years in advance and say that Josiah is going to break down the altar that's being made by Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is the one who breaks down the altar after 300 years. 
and then he's going to stumble onto the grave of the bones of that prophet. Gee, didn't God get lucky? <laughs> now, I use this not only as evidence that the Bible's true. I go back to the prophecies of the Bible time and time again, where you can find prophetic verses in the Bible, and then you can find their fulfillment in history. These things actually did happen. And I keep saying that the Bible's got a perfect batting average going. And so I believe that everything else the Bible says has to happen. And everything it has said thus far has happened, at least among those things that are fulfilled. So I take this kind of stuff as great evidence of the proof of the Bible. But it also proves at the very same time that human beings simply do not have free will. They just can't. Because how many people over the course of 300 years had to get married and had to have children and had to name children for it to come out at exactly the right time that there would be a king who was named Josiah who would break down that altar? I mean, what if his parents had looked at each other and said, let's name him any other Hebrew name? Let's name him Nathan. Let's name him something else. Why did his parents decide to call him Josiah? Why did he just happen to be born into the lineage of King David's house? Why? Because God states the future in advance, and then he sets about to use his almighty power to make sure that the things he has declared happen. And that means that men simply cannot have free and unencumbered libertarian free will. They just can't. Because otherwise they would choose to do something other than what God said they would do. They can think they can. They can think they can, and don't they think they can? Human beings think that they can do whatever they want whenever they want. I use as evidence all the time people who say, well, I, I believe in God and I can stop believing whenever I want. And I can, or people who say, that's it, I give up on God. And I just kind of chuckle at him and think, you know, one of two things is true. Either you don't belong to him and he's going to let you go now, or you belong to him and you can't escape him. You're going to run and you're going to cry and you're going to hide and you're going to stomp your feet and you're going to, and you know what you're going to do? You're going to end up back in the hands of that God because a God who is completely in control overrides your willfulness. Anyway, chapter 13 of 1 Kings, now behold, there came a man of God. We don't know who he was. We don't know his name. He came from Judah to Bethel, the place where the altar is. By the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense, and he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. What are the chances? What's the likelihood of that? Look at the amount of detail. By name. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to sacrifice human bones on you, and the priests of the high places are going to be sacrificed on you. And then he gave a sign that same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Because God knows it's going to be well past that generation of people that this is actually going to happen. It's going to be 300 years. And so he gives them an immediate sign, as he frequently does, to show that he means what he says. It's actually going to occur. Then he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. Then it came about, when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar saying, seize him, because human beings love it when you tell them the word of God. They just, they enjoy it so much. Thank you for informing me. I had better get in line right away. No, seize him. But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up 
so that he could not draw it back to himself. And the altar also was split apart, and the ashes were poured out on the altar, or poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. And the king answered and said to the man of God, listen to him, change his tune. He said, please entreat the Lord for me and pray for me that my hand may be restored for me. A minute ago, it was seize him. Now it's, oh, uh, I guess God's on your side. So if you could pray to God on my behalf. So the man of God entreated the Lord. The king's hand was restored to him and it became as it was before. And then the king said to the man of God, come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. A minute ago, it was seize him. And then his hand dried up and he couldn't draw his arm back to himself And the altar did break, which is a stone, and the ashes that are supposed to be heaped up on the altar, the ashes that were going to be used in a succession of sacrifices, all spilled out to the ground, exactly as the man of God had said. And suddenly the king's like, hey, come on to me, to my house, and I'll give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way that you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. So now he's heading back to Judah. Now the next part of this chapter is that an old prophet is living in Bethel and sees him, And says to him after inviting him home and and the prophet saying again, no, I can't eat, I can't drink here, and I have to go home a different way. The prophet says, oh, well, I'm also a prophet. And an angel came to me and he said to tell you to come on to my house. And the prophet made the mistake of going. He had heard from God, this is what you're supposed to do. But then he didn't do it when somebody else came along with more convincing words. He had no proof, no evidence that an angel actually spoke to that prophet. But God used that prophet and his uh, bit of chicanery to show that the first prophet, who really was a prophet, who prophesied for God, nevertheless, he did not do what God told him to do. Okay, that takes us through the rest of the chapter. So go down to, let's go down to verse 26. Now, when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, oh, well, what did he hear? Verse 25, behold, men passed by and they saw the body. Can't do that. Verse 24, verse 23, and it came about after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk that he saddled his donkey for him for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now, when he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road with the donkey standing beside it. And the lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Now, when the old prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, that is the man of God who disobeyed the command of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, which has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to him. Then he spoke to his son, saying, saddle the donkey for me. And they saddled it. And he went and he found his body down the road with the donkey and the lion standing beside the body. And the lion had not eaten the body nor torn the donkey which means God's also in charge of lions. (laughs) So the prophet took up the body of the man of God and laid it on his donkey, brought him back, brought him into the city of the old prophet to mourn and to bury him. And he laid his body in his own grave and they mourned over him saying, Alas, my brother. And it came about after he had buried him that he spoke to his sons and said, When I die... Bury me in the grave in which the man of God is buried. Lay my bones beside his bones. For the thing shall surely come to pass, which he cried by the word of the Lord. 
against the altar in Bethel and against all the houses of the high places which are in the cities of Samaria. And after this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of all the high places and among all the people. Okay, go to 2 Kings. That's the background. That's what happened. So now Josiah has done exactly what that prophet said he was going to do, has destroyed the temple, has destroyed the altar, not the temple, has destroyed the altar that was made by Jeroboam, and then he's looking for bones to burn on that high place so that he can defile the high place, and he comes across a grave. Which grave? The grave that both of those prophets are in. And that's the prophet, by the way, that predicted that Josiah would do that. So, verse 17, Josiah said, what is this monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, it is the grave of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed these things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. Now, if I'm Josiah at that moment, I'm either going back and reading the Chronicles of the Kings and finding my name written there 300 years ago connected to this prophet, or maybe Josiah knew it going in. But either way, if you're looking at the word of God and a prophet has come and predicted you were going to do something and named you by name and said what your lineage was, that you were of the house of David, you're going to be that Josiah, you're going to be king. And you read that? Aren't you overwhelmed? <laughs> Aren't you amazed? Aren't you? Okay. So Josiah at that point goes, okay, you know that whole digging up bones thing? Don't touch those bones. Because that's the prophet that predicted me. Verse 18, and he said, let him alone. Let no one disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Both those prophets are in that grave. And Josiah also removed all the houses of the high places which were in the cities of Samaria. That's what else the prophet said he was going to do. He was going to break down that altar and break down all the homes of the high places. of The cities of Samaria which the kings of Israel had made provoking the Lord. And he did to them just as he had done in Bethel. And all the priests of the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and he burned the human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. Pretty cool story, huh? <laughs> Not only does that show God's control, but it should give you confidence yet again that the Bible you're holding in your hand is the word of God. Because as I've said so, so very many times, there's no other religious literature in the history of the world of any major respected religion ever that has this kind of prophecy and has this kind of accuracy. It just doesn't exist. When I hear people try to say, well, you know, the God of the Bible is the same as the God of the Quran, or he is the same as the Vishnus and the gods and the uh, Bhagavad Gita, you know, that that includes all the gods and Yahweh's in there somewhere and Jesus is in there somewhere. I say, no, no, no. The Gita is very different than the Bible. If you look at any of the historic religious literature of the whole wide world for all of time, you find nothing like what you find in the Bible. That makes the Bible unique. That makes the Bible distinct. And if you're going to rest your eternal soul on something, I would think you would want something with rigor, something that has proof, something that has evidence of its honesty. And that, again, is why I keep coming back to the Bible. That and God has overwhelmed my rebellious heart. <laughs> and I keep coming back. Okay, so let's talk about this Passover because we've still got some reading to do. Now, there were seven, you know this, right? There are seven feasts that Israel was assigned. 
the first and greatest of them was the Passover. The Passover was instituted as God was taking Israel out of Egypt. The whole name Passover, the identification of Passover, was because on the night that God was going to take the Israelites out of Egypt, he sent the death angel into Egypt to kill the firstborn of every family. But if they did what Moses said, if the Israelites took a baby lamb, a spotless lamb, an unblemished lamb, and brought it into the house a couple days, long enough to kind of get to know the lamb and maybe even love the baby lamb, and then the father of the household had to hang the lamb up by its back feet and slice its neck open, and then he had to catch the blood of the slain lamb, and then he had to use hyssop and dip it into the blood and paint the blood on the doorpost and the lentil of their homes. Now, the Israelites don't know they're leaving yet. They don't know what's going to happen. They've just simply been told, do this. And I don't know if you know this, but blood, after a little while, begins to smell. And so their natural tendency is going to think, well, I don't want to do that. Why would I put blood on the door? They had to do it because God said so. And then they just had to trust. And then the death angel passed through Egypt, killing all the firstborn. And anywhere that the death angel saw the blood of the slain lamb on the doorpost, he would pass over that house. And that's where the name Passover comes from. Now that night, there had to have been screaming and wailing and there's dead people everywhere. There's dead children. There's dead animals. There's death, death, death everywhere. It had to be phenomenally frightening to be in Egypt at that moment. And yet, if you were inside your house with the door closed, eating that Passover lamb with the blood on your door, you were safe. You were protected in the midst of all that. Proof yet again that God knows how to care for his own. He knows how to protect his own, how to preserve his own, and how to keep them separate. And then this is the even more controversial part of it. Moses didn't tell everybody how to get passed over. He only told the people that God chose. God chose Israel, and those people were told how to avoid the death angel. But Moses didn't tell the Egyptians, go get a lamb, kill it, put the blood on your door, and your firstborn are going to be okay. He only told the Israelites because they were God's chosen people, and they did what God said to do, and the death angel passed over them. Okay, well, that event was then memorialized every year in the month of Nisan, at the first full moon, at about the 14th of Nisan. That, that was year by year memorialized, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. It's still being memorialized. And it's still being memorialized to this day. So of the seven feasts, you've got Passover. Passover is also the day that all the Israelites had to get all the leaven out of their houses and out of the camp. So that's also the day of preparation for a week-long feast known as the unleavened bread. And so Passover and unleavened bread are inextricably linked. You can't have one without the other. They go together. And so the first day and the seventh day are high days, high holy days. Somewhere in that week-long feast with the high day and the first day and the seventh day, somewhere in that week there's going to be a first day of the week. And that first day of the week was first fruits. And then counting from first fruits, if you counted 70 weeks, the first day of the week after those seven weeks passed was the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost because it was 50 days. Penta, 50. And so that's the Pentecost. And then there's a gap of time. Then there's summertime. And then there's three fall feasts. Out of all those feasts, out of all seven that God added to Israel over the history of Israel, once he got them in their land and they started planting and growing, then he gave them the Feast of first fruits, And then he gave them the harvest feasts, the Feast of Weeks. And he gave them the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. And gave them the Feast of uh, 
the sacrifices, the Day of Atonement, all of that, and the Feast of Trumpets, all of that came over the course of time, but it all was founded on Passover. You get my point, which is that Passover is the first and primary feast. And then Jesus, of course, as he's on the planet, not only fulfills those spring feasts, but then he chooses Passover as the direct type of him. He is the Passover lamb, as we just read out of 1 Corinthians this past Sunday, that because our Passover lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed, has been crucified, therefore we are unleavened. And so there's your type and antitype, and yet Paul says, but keep the feast. Keep the feast. He doesn't say keep the feasts, the seven, but continue keeping the Passover feast. And then, of course, he's going to correct the way the Corinthians do it. So throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, Passover has a sort of primacy. It's the most important and the most fundamental of all the feasts. So that's introduction to this part of chapter 23 of uh, 2 Kings. Let's start reading or we're never going to get done tonight. Then the king commanded all the people saying, celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. In other words, this was the greatest Passover that had ever been celebrated in Jerusalem. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Keep your finger right there and turn to 2 Chronicles for just a moment. Turn to 2 Chronicles 35. Because 2 Kings doesn't tell us how grand this Passover actually was, but the chronicler takes the time to tell us what a big deal it was. 2 Chronicles chapter 35. Verse 1, then Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and they slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priests in their offices and encouraged them in the service of the house of the Lord. He also said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, He said, put the holy ark in the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It will be a burden on your shoulders no longer. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Do you realize that that means that the ark of the covenant wasn't even residing in the house of God? So far we've seen that temple prostitutes were. We've seen that idols were. We've seen that statues to foreign gods were. But there's no ark of God. And so King Josiah says to the Levites that have the ark, restore the ark to the temple of God. Verse 4, and prepare yourselves by your father's households in your divisions, according to the writing of David, the king of Israel, and according to the writing of his son Solomon. Moreover, stand in the holy place according to the sections of your father's households, of your brethren and the lay people, and according to the Levites by division of the father's households. Now, slaughter the Passover animals, sanctify yourself, and prepare for your brethren to do according to the word of the Lord by Moses. And Josiah contributed to the lay people, to all who were present, flocks of lambs and kids, all for the Passover offering, numbering 30,000 plus 3,000 bulls, and these were all the king's possessions. He wanted the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem to celebrate and worship God, and so he gave them from his flocks and sacrificed 30,000 sheep. His officers also contributed a free will offering to the people, the priests and the Levites, Hilkiah and Zechariah and Jehiel, 
the officers of the house of God gave to the priests for the Passover offering 2,600 from the flocks. That means 2,600 lambs and 300 bulls. Conaniah also and Shemaiah and Nathaniel, his brothers and Hashabiah and Jael and Josabad, the officers of the Levites, contributed to the Levites for the Passover offering 5,000 from their flocks and 500 bulls. So the service was prepared and the priests stood at their stations and the Levites by their divisions according to the king's command and they slaughtered the Passover animals and while the priests sprinkled the blood received from their hands, the Levites skinned them. And they removed the burnt offerings that they might give them to the sections of their father's households of the lay people to present to the Lord. As it is written in the book of Moses, this they also did with the bulls. So they roasted the Passover animals on the fire according to the ordinance and they boiled the holy things in pots and kettles and pans and they carried them speedily to all the lay people. And afterwards they prepared for themselves and for the priests because the priests, the sons of Aaron, were offering the burnt offerings and the fat until night time. And therefore the Levites prepared for themselves and for the priests and for the sons of Aaron. And the singers, the sons of Asaph, were also at their stations, according to the command of David, Asaph, Haman, Judathan, the king's seer. And the gatekeeper at each gate did not depart from their service, because the Levites, their brothers, prepared for them. In other words, brought them food so they could stay at their gates. So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord, according to the command of King Josiah. And thus the sons of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover until that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, because Passover and unleavened bread are inextricably linked. And there had not been a celebration of the Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. Nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah, and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, back to Second Kings. Now we have some idea how big that Passover was. We are back in 2 Kings 23. We are starting in verse 24. Well, let's start in verse 23. In the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums and the spiritists and the teraphim, those are household idols, and the idols and all the abomination that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, and with all his soul, and with all his might. Does that sound familiar? Okay. Jesus picks up those words later. According to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. However, even though Josiah is a good king, even though Josiah has dedicated himself to the work of God, verse 26, however, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger burned against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also from my sight as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off Jerusalem, this city which I have chosen, and the temple of which I said, my name will be there. Is your finger still in Second Chronicles? Let me show you one last thing and we're done. Hey, I made it within an hour. That's a I've been talking really fast tonight. 
And, you know, I, I get tongue-tied more easily since the, the episode back in March. I, I do exercises at home and constantly work on my mouth because I, I still struggle sometimes with the, the way that I find words and the way that I form words. That, that problem has kind of stuck with me. So uh, I'm glad I can talk that fast because I listen. I listen online sometimes. I listen to some of my messages from a year or two ago and after thinking that guy's pretty good I think I, I can't do that anymore I, that guy is talking so fast ideas are coming so quickly and I remember what it felt like and what it and I, I can't do that as well anymore so even though you're shaking your head maybe it feels that way from the outside but here on the inside I feel it when I struggle anyway I didn't mean to talk about that but but I was giving you time to turn to 2 Chronicles, chapter 35. 2 Chronicles 35, we're going to start in verse 20, and we're going to find out how Josiah dies. And then that will be the end of the story of Josiah, the last good king in Judah. And then when we come back here on January 4th, we'll be able to pick up with Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim and Jehoiakin and then the Babylonian captivity. And that's the time of Jeremiah, as you're going to see. This is the time of Jeremiah, who is predicting that they're going to be in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And, of course, Daniel is going to read Jeremiah and be inspired to uh, pray to God, just do what you said, only make it 70 years. And then King Cyrus is going to rise up, and King Cyrus is going to send the Judahites back to build their city and to build the city walls. And that takes us into the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and then they're going to fall. Uh, Babylon does fall to the uh, Medo-Persians. That's why the Persian king Cyrus is able to make that decree. But that takes us into the time of Esther. And so there's a lot to read still. We're not going to be able to read all of Jeremiah. But by the way, since I said that, oh, that's why I said it. Jer Jeremiah was my... See, I work off bullet points. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I work. I work off bullet points, and then I, I memorize the bullet points in my head. And I'm afraid if I ever start writing them down and don't rely on my memory, that I'll lose my memory. And so, I, so Jeremiah was my last bullet point, and now I remember why. So it's, it's great. Um, I find it incredibly interesting that God has dealt with Israel all this time under the covenant that he made with Moses at Mount Sinai. And that even though they said at the beginning and end of Judah, they said, we will keep this covenant. We will do everything that, the, that God said we're going to do. We're, we're going to do all of that. And nevertheless, they broke his law time and time and time again. And so the wrath of God is poured out. And God takes the northern tribes away, and he takes the southern tribes away. And so what does God do? This is that juncture, like I said, where Jeremiah shows up. And what does God do through Jeremiah? He presents a new covenant. 31. Jeremiah 31. Because God can't go back to that covenant with Moses at Mount Sinai to restore Israel. He's going to restore Israel. He has to restore Israel because of promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because of the unconditional promise that he made to Abraham. And that covenant carried over into Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel. And so he's got to keep those promises, but he cannot take them back to Moses to accomplish the restoration of Israel. But at the very moment that they're being dispersed out of the city that God chose and the temple where he chose to place his name, at that very moment he raises up a prophet who tells them about a new covenant that God will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and specifically says, not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand to take them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke. It's not going to be like that one. It's not going to be all rules and regulations. It's going to be a new covenant that God is going to make unconditionally like the Abrahamic covenant where God is going to establish that covenant in the blood of his son, not in the blood of goats and bulls. And that's all being introduced at this very moment as God is taking Judah out of Jerusalem. 
when they're thinking, well, that's it. The Israelites are gone. We're gone. That's the end of national Israel. That has to be the end. And Jeremiah comes on the scene and says, no, it's 70 years. And God's going to restore you. And he's going to do it through a new covenant. That's all happening right here. And I find that again fascinating because God could have said at the time of Adam's rebellion, he could have said, well, all right, um, someday there's going to be a new covenant. (laughs) Or he could have said at Mount Sinai, okay, they're going to break this covenant, but I'm going to make a new one. It's not until they've fully broken the covenant till God's wrath is poured out until there's no way to restore them via the Moses covenant. That's when God says a new covenant which he always intended to do because the new covenant is in the blood of his son who was determined to be the lamb of God before the foundation of the world. So this was always God's plan. And if there's a new covenant, there has to be a people. Has to be a people. And who are the people? Both in Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, it is the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And who are those people groups? The group that went into the Assyrian captivity and the group that went into the Babylonian captivity. Those are their names. House of Israel, House of Judah. And God says, I'll make a new covenant with the House of Israel and the House of Judah. And the day is coming when none of them are going to have to say, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the greatest to the least. And I'm going to write my law on their inward parts. It's no longer going to be written in stone external to them. God is going to take out their stony heart and give them a heart of flesh and give them internally the ability to know and worship God. Those are Israel's promises. Those are Judah's promises. Okay, so there, I got that bold point out of the way. Let's read real fast and then we can go home. And it really doesn't matter if I read real fast because you're off for the next six weeks or something. So... So read slow. <laughs> okay, the rest of them want to talk to you. So <laughs> let's start at verse 20. We are in 2 Chronicles 35, verse 20. After this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Necho, the king of Egypt, came up to make war at Carchemish on the Euphrates. And Josiah went out to engage him. But Necho sent messengers to him, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I am not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God, notice this, and God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God who is with me, that he may not destroy you. However, Josiah would not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to make war with him, nor did he listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to make war on the plain of Megiddo. By the way, where's the Megiddo plain? What's the Armageddon? It's in the Megiddo plain, which was a plain that kings oftentimes did war in. It was a big open plain where you could assemble your armies and it had hills on either side so that the leadership of the armies and the generals and the kings could could get up there and watch the war ensue down in the valley. And yet we all know the Armageddon, which is a direct reference to the Valley of Megiddo. So, however, Josiah would not turn away from him. Now, I find it interesting. We don't know what the background here is at all that Nico says that God told me to hurry up and take care of this and do this. We don't know anything about the background except that we're told here that Josiah did not listen to the words of Nico from the mouth of God. So, obviously, he didn't believe him. He didn't think this was really from God. So, he thought he was safe going into the war. Verse 23 And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of his chariot and carried him in the second chariot which he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem where he died, and he was buried in the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Then Jeremiah... 
See, it's the time of Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah. And all the male and the female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day. By the way, that's why there is a book in the Bible called The Lamentations. And do you know what Jeremiah is lamenting about? Everything we're reading right now. The destruction of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah chanted a lament for Josiah and all the male and the female singers speak about Josiah in their lamentations to this day and they made them an ordinance in Israel and behold they are also written in the lamentations. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his deeds of devotion as were written in the law of the Lord and his acts from first to last Behold, they are written in the books of the kings of Israel and Judah. And we, unfortunately, don't have those books anymore. Those seem to be the books of uh, the day-to-day and week-to-week enterprises of the kings, and we don't have those anymore. But Jeremiah, who is most likely the author at this point here in 2 Kings, is summarizing for us the high points of God's interaction with all the kings of Israel and Judah. Do you have a better sense now, if nothing else, do you have a better sense of how more of the Bible fits together? You have a better sense of how it all works, because it all works as one cohesive piece, and people far too often take a piece from here and a piece from there and don't understand the interaction of the Bible with itself, and instead just treat it like it's a, a treasury of promise verses, and you just dip your finger in and... Wherever your finger falls, that's a promise meant for you. And and that's not the way the Bible works. The Bible is one cohesive unit. And I hope as we've been studying our way through the Old Testament, you're getting a greater and greater sense of that. Because if you have a really good sense of how that all fits together, then when you do get to the New Testament, when you do get to Matthew, you see how it fits perfectly into the successive history of Israel. I remember Arnold Fruchtenbaum. I remember hearing a recording one time of, of him saying that uh, growing up a Jewish boy, he had always been told you can't trust Christians. And so he, he was in college, and he was a young Jewish intellectual, and he was walking around talking against Christianity and the New Testament, and somebody challenged him and said, yes, but have you read it? And he had to admit, well, no, I just walk around criticizing something I've never read. (laughs) And he said, I started reading at Matthew, and I realized immediately, this is a Jewish book. Mm. And that was the beginning of his conversion (coughs) to Christianity. And by the way, he wrote a really nice recommendation for my book, Is the Church Israel? Mm. And it's on the Amazon site. There's that nice quote from... Fruchtenbaum. I hope I'm saying his name right. It might be Fruchtenbaum. I don't know. I've never heard it said by him. But anyway, I hope that by getting a greater sense of how the Old Testament works and what the Old Testament says and how God works through covenants and how God keeps his promises to people, that then when you look at the New Testament, you can see that continuing Judaistic influence <coughs> over all the New Testament. And even Paul, though he's talking to Gentiles, he goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile because that Judaistic basis is never lost in early Christianity. And you need to hold on to that, especially as we continue on Sunday mornings going through the books of the uh, Corinthians because it's going to keep coming up. All right, I'm actually done. And apparently I'm done for like five or six weeks now, so that's good. But we will be here on Sundays. I will be here Christmas Sunday. I might even bring you chocolatey gifts. You don't know. And then I will be here New Year's Day. And I might even bring you aspirin. You don't know. <laughs> You're daring me to dress up as Santa Claus. As I know. I think the likelihood of that is very, very slim. <laughs> No, I I don't think mine could either. 
All right. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that your word convicts us time and time again. And that the further we dig into your word, the more fascinated we become by it, the more amazed we are by your control of human history, and the more reassured we are in our faith and in our confidence that you are going to keep your word and do everything that you said you're going to do. And if that is the case, then you know how to save your people, and how to preserve us, and how to get us all the way safely home. And that is a great confidence and a great promise, and we rest in that. And that's why we have what Paul calls a peace that passes understanding. So as we go our separate ways tonight, as we go out into the cold, keep us all safe, take us all home, take us to our beds, give us a good night's rest, let us do good and productive things tomorrow and every day, whatever our hands find to do, whether we're eating or drinking or working, whatever we're doing, let us do it as unto you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.